0: Uh, tonight, as I mentioned, we are going to be talking about the immortality of God, immortal invisible, God only wise, and light inaccessible hid from our eyes that's uh, I, apparently the writer of that hymn read our confession because that 's what we 're going to be uh, dealing with um, right in the middle of um, paragraph one of chapter two. Um, We're picking up right where we left off, after God is without body, parts or passions. Uh, Tonight we are dealing with the statement that says, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. That's going to be our uh, focus this evening. Um, As I was thinking about this, I remembered... not because I was there or read it when it happened, but I've seen it many times, Uh, in April of 1966, some of you were around, not I, um, (laughs) Time Magazine ran the... uh, (laughs) You were? You weren't? Yeah. (laughs) Time Magazine um, dropped a bomb, and the the front cover, um, along with its... um, Its main article in that edition was entitled, Is God Dead? Here's what the introduction uh, to that article said Is God dead? It is a question that tantalizes both believers, who perhaps secretly fear that he is, and atheists, who probably suspect that the answer is no. Is God dead? The three words represent a summons to reflect on the meaning of existence. No longer is the question no longer is the question the taunting jest of skeptics for whom unbelief is the test of wisdom and for whom Nietzsche is the prophet who gave the right answer a century ago. Even within Christianity now confidently renewing itself In spirit as well as form, a small band of radical theologians has seriously argued that the churches must accept the fact of God's death and get along without him. How does the issue differ from the age-old assertion that God does not need, does not and never did exist? Nietzsche's thesis was the striving self-centered man had killed God, and that settled that. The current death of God group believes that God is indeed absolutely dead, but proposes to carry on and write a theology without theos, without God. Less radical Christian thinkers hold that at the very least God is in the image of man. God sitting in heaven is dead. And in the central task of religion today, they seek to imagine and define a God who can touch men's emotions and engage men's minds. If nothing else, the Christian atheists are walking... Uh, waking the churches to the brutal reality that the basic premise of faith, the existence of a personal God who created the world and sustains it with his love, is now subject to profound attack. What is in the question is God himself, warns German theologian Heinz Zart. And the churches are fighting a hard defensive battle, fighting for every inch. The basic theological problem today, says one thinker who's helped define it, is the reality of God. And it goes on for about eight more pages. So um, there's a lot of interesting things brought up in that article. Um, a very interesting question to ask, uh, particularly in that period in American history. It's all based, really, and it was mentioned upon a statement that's attributed to Frederick Nietzsche, who, um, who proclaimed outright in several of his works, God is dead. I saw something as I was looking this up. It said uh, in uh, Europe, someone had spray painted on a wall and said, um, God is dead. And underneath, they attributed it to Nietzsche. And someone came underneath that and wrote, Nietzsche is dead. God. (laughs) Uh, That's the truth. But nearly 50 years later, the question still remains, doesn't it, for many? Is God dead? Uh, For atheists, the answer is quite easy. He never existed in the first place. Um, Since the rise of what has been called the death of God movement in the 60s and 70s, various um, ideas have arisen to suggest that um, maybe, maybe what we should talk about is that God has simply died in the minds of mankind. Um, that he exists, but uh, he doesn't exist in our hearts, he doesn't exist in our minds, so um, uh, we've essentially killed God in that sense. And some were arguing for that in the 60s, and many hold to that today. Um, Others believe that he did, in fact, exist at one time, um, but asserted um, that uh, at Jesus' death, that God truly did die and uh, ceased to exist at that point. Um, But really we think about it, it really is one of the most foolish questions that mankind has ever sought to answer, isn't it? Is God dead? Um, They obviously didn't take the time to study our confession of faith. Uh, The Bible and our confession of faith speak very clearly and unequivocally about God's future existence. Obviously, it talks about his past existence as well. Uh, We've already covered that as we've spoken about the eternality of God. Um, And as we talk about these things, um, when we talk about eternality, we're generally referring to um, God's existence um, from all eternity past into all eternity future. Um, But really, the focus is primarily on eternity past and present um, when we talk about the uh, immortality of God, the immortal God, we're talking mainly about um, a God who cannot uh, come to an end, a God who cannot be killed. Um, so there is a, there is a difference. Uh, some theologians don't make the distinction, but our confession does. Um, and I think it's an important distinction to make because it speaks directly to the issue um, that has become... Uh, something of commonplace in our day. Um, also, something to keep in mind, which makes talking about uh, God in uh, in this sense very difficult, is when we talk about um, God and His existence, uh, we can only talk about Him in terms of um, time and space. Uh, because that's all we know. We only know how things function in time and in space. We... We live uh, kind of um, we live in a linear sense. We go by the clock, we go by days of the week and months of the year, and on and on and on. There's a beginning to something, there's an end to something. Uh, that's how we live our lives. Well, when we understand God, we have to recognize that um, He is outside of that um, So when we talk about the omnipresence of God, um, we think of God being at all places at all times, um, right here and right now, and that certainly is true, Um, but when you start to take that out of time and space and sort of this transcendent reality, um, it becomes a little bit more difficult of an issue to deal with um, in terms of... The intellectual thought through that. So um, just recognize that as we work through this, um, we use the language of time and space, but that's not an entirely accurate way of describing God, although in the scriptures, because as we've talked about before with anthropomorphisms, anthropopathisms, these sorts of things, um, very similar. God has to use human language and human ideas to communicate to us in a way that we can understand, and he has graciously done so. So he speaks of himself in time and space and involves himself in time and space, but he himself is outside of it. Um, now, while the the, uh, the Westminster divines, the, the writers of the Westminster Confession uh, would not, disagree with this statement, um, that God alone hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Uh, that we have in our confession. It's not included in the Westminster Confession, nor is it included in the Savoy Declaration. Um, the first inclusion of this statement was actually in the first London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1646. Um, And it's derived from the doxological um, statement of the Apostle Paul in his first letter to Timothy, which is... And you can flip there, because we're going to look at it. um, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, the second part of verse 15 and 16. This is the primary uh, focus uh, of where the Apostle Paul is... um, is bringing about what we understand uh, to be true in this doctrine. Someone read that for us, beginning with, He who is the blessed. Thank you. Um, Almost word for word for our confession, isn't it? Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Um, so you can see very clearly where this statement in our confession comes from. Um, so I want to talk about God um, now as um, the never-failing fountain. The never-failing fountain. Um, this idea of immortality implies life, doesn't it? Uh, Immortality implies that God has an endless existence, but the biblical concept of God's immortality is far more exalted than simply saying God cannot die or God God cannot cease to exist. Um, God is life's never-failing fountain. Uh, The literal rendering of Paul's words to Timothy in this sense is, who only has deathlessness? Deathlessness. This word immortality, we can translate it deathlessness, I think uh, it's very helpful here. So God is imperishable, He's not subject to corruption, He's not subject to decay. Uh, he is, uh, as we've talked about, He is impeccable, He is no way liable to sin, we know that very clearly. And so since God is the indescribably holy one, He cannot be tempted with evil in any way, James tells us in chapter 1 and verse 13. And we understand that death is the wages of sin, and since God is incorruptible, and since God is impeccable, he is therefore immortal or deathless. Um, another Another passage to consider is also in Timothy uh, Paul opens and closes this letter with these doxological uh, statements, um, and they have the same sort of ring to them. First Timothy chapter one and verse seventeen. If someone can read that to us, please. thank you isn't it interesting that, as Paul was writing to Timothy, uh, when you come across um, doxology in the Bible, the idea is that, um, it's not necessarily that they sat there and they thought long and hard about what they were going to write. It is a, it is just an overflow of praise of what they were, th- all they were thinking about and all they had to write and all they wanted to communicate. That this, all of these ideas and these wonderful truths about God that were so deeply implanted in the hearts and minds of the biblical writers, it just overflows in worship. And so it's interesting to see that in this, that, um, that Paul, uh, in the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter, what he turns to is the uh, immortal, invisible God. That all the things that he could have highlighted and all the things that he highlights in other places, that twice in this letter, this is what he highlights. Um, in Psalm thirty-six nine, the psalmist writes that... Um, God is the fountain of life. Well, I think logically we can draw some conclusions from that. If God is the fountain of life, then what does that mean about God? Well, that he has life, for one, and two, he can never cease to have that life. God is the fountain of life, he's the giver of life, and Based upon his other attributes and based upon this name given to him by the psalmist, um, he cannot cease to have life. It is who he is, immortal. John writes that God has life in himself in John chapter 5 as his very essence. Uh, Paul tells Timothy not only is God immortal as an attribute, but if you look back at chapter 6 and verse 16, he says he alone has immortality. That statement by itself, he alone has immortality, is, is very important. Um, what does that apply imply when it says he alone has immortality? Okay, <laughs> that no one else does. Now, that raises some questions, and we will, um, we will get to that in just a minute, but um, do human beings have immortality? Will we go on living forever? We will. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll deal with that in just a second. Something to chew on a little bit. Um, the holy angels, are they immortal? Yes. <laughs> they will go on, living forever. Um, the resurrected bodies of the redeemed, immortal. Immortal. Um, But what's different about the immortality of God and the immortality of the angels and the resurrected body of believers? Paul is saying here very directly that he alone has immortality. So we can't just kind of overshoot that and say, well, he he didn't mean it was just God's alone. Uh, There's some other meaning there. I think he means just that. But our immortality... And the immortality of the angels is derived from God. It's something that he gives to us. So it's not something we simply possess in and of ourselves. It's not part of our essence. It's not our nature. It is something given, granted to us by God. Now, there's a great blessing in that for the believer in that we have immortal uh, souls. We have... um, our resurrected bodies will, um, uh, will go on forever with God. Um, but that also says something about um, those who are condemned and consigned to hell, doesn't it? That they too are immortal, meaning that God maintains that for their eternal uh, torment and damnation. But these, uh, this characteristic of immortality is bestowed by God. But God and He alone has immortality. Um, it's underived. He's in full possession of it, and it is in Himself and from Himself. He alone has immortality, simply and absolutely. He is the fountain of it. He's the fountain of life. He's the fountain of immortality. As such, He is to be acknowledged. He is to be. Adored. Those are the words of Arthur Pink. In other words, the immortality of the human soul is a result of becoming, as Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.4, partakers of the divine nature. That's, that statement says a lot of what I'm talking about here. Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. It's not something we possess. All, we can say that of all the communicable attributes of God, that they are things that God has bestowed upon creation. They're not things we, uh, we simply uh, have woken up and said, I want this and therefore I have it. Um, it's something that God has granted. Uh, if you think of all of these other things of God's essence that we have talked about, and God's nature that we've talked about, um, that God is the perfection of all of these attributes um, that we can ascribe to Him. He's the fullness of them and He, uh, he contains and, um, and displays all of them um, simultaneously, all of these sorts of things that we've uh, talked about, um, we we recognize in that 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 makes God God and us the recipients of anything that we have, um, and therefore again, He's to be acknowledged and adored as a result of that. We are partakers of the divine nature; we don't simply possess it on our own. Um, God has been eternally immortal while human beings take on immortality as a result of our coming into existence. So before we were, we weren't immortal. Which sounds silly and stupid, um, but if you think about God who has existed eternally, um, that certainly sets him apart, doesn't it? Uh, John Calvin spoke of creaturely immortality as borrowing life from God. And so if you think of immortality as sort of this... uh, minute-by-minute minute sort of thing. Uh, the fact that I live one more minute speaks to the immortality that God has granted to me um, because I, my, my existence in its entirety doesn't end right here and right now. So um, John Calvin said this, If you take away the power of God which is communicated to the soul of man, it will instantly fade away. And the same thing may be said about angels. I think that is tremendous. If you remove the power of God, what happens? Everything, just we've talked about this before, we just it fades away, he says. It ceases to exist. It can no longer be. The immortality of any creature is derived from an alien source, an outside source, namely God himself. For the believer... In Christ, immortality is good news. It's our blessed hope. Think about we don't attach this attribute that's derived from God to our to our future hope, but really that is it, isn't it? We have a hope uh, in our future rest with Christ, because of what he has accomplished in imputing his righteousness onto us, that we would be able to live and dwell with him, how long? Forever. We say it all the time. Well, what is that as a result of? Our immortality. The fact that God has given us as the fountain of life, eternal life. Um, that's good news for us. Obviously, for the non-believer, it is the terrible reality of eternal damnation and torment. And again, God's not passive in this. And that's something we need, to, uh, we need to think about. God is not passively um, granting immortality and then just sort of backs away from it. and No, oh, we, we magically have it. But again, if you think about that statement of Calvin's that God's power is maintaining it, well, it's equally as true for the one who is in heaven as it is for the one who is in hell. That God is not passively maintaining, you know, that He hasn't just granted immortality and they are continuing to, to dwell forever in eternal torment, but that God is maintaining that state of judgment, of damnation. And that is, um, that's a difficult reality. It's a difficult um, truth to, uh, to consider. Um, but God... Wrath is just, and the very thing that each and every one of us deserve. So for the believer, immortality is a redemptive concept. It is our everlasting salvation. Uh, For God, it is eternal blessedness. But while the believer has received immortality, as one receives a drink of water, God has it. It belongs to his very being. He is himself, the fountain. So, it follows that when we look up to God as the fountain of immortal life, we should reckon this present life as no value. The value rests in the immortal um, dwelling with God. And the very thing that we should all be looking forward to. Um, not just eternal life that's inherited and that we walk in here and now. And that is a wonderful thing. And we have much that we're called to and live in um, here in this life. And we don't, want to be, uh, we don't want to be lax in that. We want to live every day and every minute to the glory of God. Um, but nevertheless, our great hope rests in that we will, um, we will one day be in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, dwelling eternally with our Lord and Savior, um, no sin, no pain, um, but only um, joy and uh, happiness, everlasting with with our uh, with our Lord, and that is um, that is a great truth, and that is our great hope as believers. Um, any any thoughts uh, before I press on? Hopefully this is a little easier for us to kind of get our arms around than some of the other things we've uh, discussed. Uh, the everlasting immortality of God, uh, we see it all throughout the Scriptures. I'll give you a few examples. Um, you don't have to flip to all these. I'll just um, tell you what they say, but if you want to write them down or you'll get my notes later. So, um, Isaiah 41.4. We see God identifying himself as the first... And with the last, I am He. Isaiah forty four six. God says, "I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God." Uh, in Revelation one seventeen, and this is really interesting. The Apostle John has an encounter in heaven uh, with uh, with Jesus, and Jesus comes up to John, and He places His hand upon John. And he says, fear not, I am, what does he say? Okay, I am the first and the last. Yeah. So this is Jesus speaking now using the very same language that we see in uh, the book of Isaiah. God speaking of himself and now Jesus using that very same language. Uh, good place to go for those who deny the divinity of Christ. Uh, in the late, uh, in the angels, uh, um, in the letter to the church in Smyrna, in Revelation two eight, the angel says he is writing the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Again, talking about Jesus. Um, three different times in the book of Revelation, God proclaims, "I am the Alpha and the Omega," Revelation one eight. 21.6 and 22.13. So these are just, just a small sampling, but over and over and over again, we see this idea of the immortality of God in the Scriptures. Another uh, great place um, uh, to, uh, to consider is uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul, um, he's talking about the, uh, the resurrection of Christ. He ties to that the resurrection of the believer and our uh, our great hope again is this resurrection that's to come that we will be resurrected to uh, to live and dwell with Christ forever and ever um so a good meditation on 1 Corinthians 14 um really speaks to this as well um now, Several theologians, in addition to appealing to the scriptures, they've also argued for God's immortality from a position of logic. And I think they're very convincing arguments. Um, so let me, let me share some of them uh, with you. This one, um, it's fairly lengthy, but I think worth our time. It's uh, Timothy Dwight, who was the uh, grandson of um, Jonathan Edwards. Um, and he wrote this. God cannot be supposed to terminate his own existence. Without insisting on the natural impossibility of this fact, it may be safely asserted to be morally impossible. The being who has all good in his power, possession, and enjoyment must be infinitely delighted with perpetual life or existence. The contemplation of his perfections, designs, And works the purpose of accomplishing eternally the supreme good of the universe, the manifestation of his infinite beauty, glory and loveliness to the intelligent system for every rising, enlarging and improving and the complete assurance that all his pleasure will be accomplished, constitute at once an aggregate of happiness, which must be regarded by him with immense complacency, and render his existence infinitely desirable in his own eyes. It is scarcely necessary to observe that creatures can in no way affect this existence or the happiness of God, for being absolutely dependent on him, they can be and do nothing but what he permits. From these considerations it is plain that God must continue to exist forever." That is a fantastic statement. Um, what, what, what doctrine have we already looked at um, that speaks to this, um, that creatures can in no way affect the existence or the happiness of God? Anyone? Yeah, the impassibility of God, right? We can't, we can't affect God in the sense that his, um, his happiness as God being God um, uh, will never will never change. Uh, we can't affect his existence. He does not suffer as a result of us. Um, to suggest that God might die, or to suggest that God um, might cease to exist, to suggest that He would desert His own being. Because he holds all things together and in his own it is his own greatest delight that he in, in, in and of himself is, as our uh, Baptist catechism says, the first and chiefest being. That's God's greatest delight himself. Uh, so he's not going to abandon that. He's not going to run from that. Uh, he's not going to cause that and it's As we've heard argued, it would be impossible that he would cause that uh, to happen. Um, The only reason... Let's think about this, logically. Why does anything die? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) nothing lives forever. Good, we took a baby step there, but we're moving forward. (laughs) Why not? Yeah. Okay, something's wearing out, some kind of accidents happen, um... We can talk about um, disease and things are um, uh, broken down. Well, yeah, it fails, it deteriorates, and it uh, eventually no longer works, okay? My lawn mower that uh, when I moved here uh, about, well, five years ago now, Gary Barber let me have, it was his old one, just this week. Went to pull the cord, the whole thing came out. It was all done. (laughs) I know Jeff can fix it for me. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Things break, right? Things fail. They wear down. Well, to even think, to use that language about God, that God will deteriorate, God will break down, God will be worn out, God will have some sort of accident. On and on and on we can say... These things that would, would create suffering, create pain, create um, death, they can't be applied to God. The only reason anything dies is because of its own weakness. It has limitations. Or there's a power of some sort working against it, right? So um, if, I, um, if I run my car into the side of a building at 100 miles per hour, there's a, there's a great power working against me, right? Right? Um, the, the last thing I see before I die. Um, for God to die would be a display of weakness. It's not possible. It'd be a chink in the armor. Um, it's an opening of himself to an outside influence, which is a denial of his impassibility. Uh, Stephen Charnock, in The Existence and Attributes of God says this, There is no weakness in the nature of God that can introduce any corruption because he is infinitely simple without any mixture. He's talking about the simplicity of God, which we talked about previously. Nor can he be overpowered by anything else. A weaker cannot hurt him, and a stronger than he there cannot be. Nor can he be outwitted or circumvented because of his infinite wisdom. As he received his being from none, so he cannot be deprived of it by any. As he doth necessarily exist, so he doth necessarily always exist. Great, great statement. And again, and all through this, as we talk about God and his nature, his attributes, his essence, all of these things, I'm constantly drawn back to... Um, uh, to Paul's doxology in Romans eleven thirty three through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Glory be to Him forever. Amen. And that is really the heart of everything we're talking about here. All, um, all of the perfections that we could even think to talk about uh, find their uh, fullness in God. And so to even suggest that there would be any weakness, or there would be any opportunity for decay, there would be any opportunity for um, some external force to work against God to bring about um, suffering, uh, to bring about um, Again, we're tying this back in many ways to impassibility, but to bring about an end to God is, um, is foolish talk. It, it, it doesn't align with everything else that God is. Um, real quick, let's deal with the, the last part um, of uh, what the confession says and what the song says. Light inaccessible hid from our eyes. Um, Isaiah 45:15. we read, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. A psalmist, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 104, 2 says, God covers himself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. I love that imagery. Uh, just like a windowless building, think of a building, if we had this building, there were no windows in it whatsoever, and us with inside of it would be concealed. Just as a windowless building conceals those within it and hides them, uh, we're, we're hidden even more when uh, the building becomes unapproachable. So if we, if we had a windowless building here and outside of that we put a mile in every direction there was a fence and no one could approach onto it, we would be completely um, unapproachable in that regard. Um, so too... Uh, by God's very essence, by virtue of what it is, conceals him. So all these things we've been talking about, the perfection, the holiness of God, conceals him in a way that he is unapproachable. Let me work through that a little bit. Immortality implies life. We've already dealt with that. And Jesus, John tells us, contained the light of men, because in him was life. John 1, 4. Um, now, this light, if we need a comparison, is not unlike the sun, which is absolutely necessary for life on earth, right? Um, our survival depends upon it. We, uh, we see by the sun. Uh, we are warmed by the sun. It regulates our temperature, Uh, plant sources are fed by the sun, Uh, water levels are maintained as a result of the sun, Um, but uh, you can't sit and stare at the sun uh, without having some uh, issues as a result of it, right? Um, Eventually, it's not going to be um, the best game that you and your siblings can play when you're small. You've got to move on to something else. You're going to cause great damage. Um, In the same sense, at a magnitude of infinitely greater proportions, God dwells in this sort of unapproachable light. We can never get very close to the sun, right? Um, It's unapproachable. Uh, A.W. Pink says this, There is such an overwhelming light in God that it is inscrutable to us. As one said, the most eagle-like eyes of a human understanding are not only dazzled but quite blinded by His brightness. We may indeed draw near by faith to Him who is light, but not by reason. We can draw near to Him by faith, but not by reason. Because He is unapproachable. We cannot come more near to God than what he has brought himself to us. Um, Remember when the Israelites saw a glimpse of the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai. It says this, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people, of israel exodus twenty four when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God himself told Moses, "You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live exodus thirty three twenty so the divine glory of God is too indescribable for any creature to draw near or to even conceive of only God is able to approach unto Himself. So God is invisible to man, and yet, at the same time, we can speak of all creation being filled with his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we don't see God, but only what God has done. Very important distinction. Um, the psalmist declares that God's greatness is unsearchable. Pink again tells us, even the greatest vision of heaven will not consist of a sight of God as God, but rather as He shines forth in a manifestative and communicative way in the person of Jesus Christ as suited to finite capacities. So the blinding glory of God renders Him unapproachable both metaphysically and morally. How do we see God? We see Him in the person of Jesus Christ. We see Him in the, um, uh, the, the human nature of Jesus Christ. And we t- talked about that quite a bit um, last week, the, the nature of Jesus. So, um, any, any thoughts on uh, any of this? What, is, what does the Bible tell us about um about heaven where is our light derived it's the glory of god shining forth right we get the idea that there won't be any darkness right because we will um uh, we will uh, all things will be lit up by the glory of god so um another another consideration in all of this The light inaccessible. Hopefully as we sing that song, you think more about these attributes that we've discussed. And this in particular. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. The very same thing that he told Moses. Uh, No man can look on me... um, but we so desperately as Christians would desire to see the glory of God pass before us. That we would get a glimpse. Uh, that we would say with Moses, show me your glory. Um, that we get more and more and more of God. But never being able to approach unto Him. Uh, we can see Him like, in, in one sense in the way that we can see the sun. Um, but we'll never be able to approach onto it. We'll never be able to look directly onto it. Uh, we simply see uh, what it is, and we see the effects of it. Um, so, uh, again, all of this serves to bring us to a place of great um, rejoicing, a place of great worship and awe and reverence of God. Uh, hopefully, um, this would bring us to a place of great uh, worship together as we consider these great truths and sing these great words and reflect on these things in the Scriptures. So, amen.